gospel. So, If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 today. We're going to be talking about faith like Abraham. So these verses, or chapters in Romans that we're looking through, particularly 2, 3, 4, 5, as part of our series, is really something that nails down the idea of salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's a rather lengthy argument, but as I've said before in this series, it is a very legal argument that Paul is using and where he's setting it up line upon line, precept upon precept, building on itself, and really nailing this down so everybody can understand exactly how the God in the Old Testament has moved and now brought to fruition the entire salvation plan through Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 4, the focus and example that Paul uses is something we talked about in 2016 when we went through our Heroes of the Old Testament series. And in this case, the person that we're going to talk about a little bit today is Abraham. When I taught about this uh, uh, several years ago, and this is an entirely new sermon, I'm not just re-preaching a sermon, but um, we talked a little bit about um, what was so special about Abraham that God would use him to be the spiritual father of between one half and two thirds of the people on earth right now. One half to two-thirds of the people on earth would all trace the roots of their faith back to Abraham. Islam looks back at Abraham, but counts Ishmael, his son, his firstborn son, as their root of faith and their link back to Abraham. Judaism counts their link back to Abraham through the second son, Isaac, who was the son of the promise that God gave to them, versus the son of them taking matters into their own hands. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Christianity, of course, is a natural progression of Judaism in that we believe that the Messiah has already come in the person of Jesus the Christ. Therefore, we also trace our spiritual lineage back to Abraham through Isaac. And just for clarity, because you're going to hear me kind of go back and forth a little bit during this message, I may refer to Abraham as Abram and Sarah as Sarai. The reason for that is that Abram and Sarai were their names before God's promise was fully manifested in their lives um, in G Genesis chapter 17. So it is significant, so please don't be confused when I use their names a little interchangeably um, in this message. So who was Abraham? What made him so special that so many people today would follow his example of what it means to be a person who God is pleased with? Or more importantly to us, why did the Apostle Paul, in trying to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, go all the way back almost to the beginning of the Old Testament and talk about a man who lived back there and try to use him as an example of what it means to be a person of faith in God and a person that, that God is pleased with. And that's some of what we're going to be looking at this morning. How this man who lived 4,000 years ago is still one of the most influential men who has ever lived. As we get into this, we're going to have our scripture reader this morning. It's going to be Chris. He's going to come up and read Romans chapter 4 to us this morning. What then shall we say 
that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Well, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Was not after, but before. After he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then is he the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them? And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and when there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Yep. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the book of Romans and this particular chapter that points us back and brings a cohesion between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we can see the entire salvation history way back from the beginning and even into our lives today. Father God, I thank you for this man Abraham and I hope, Father, as we study his life a little today that we get a greater appreciation of how you have moved in the background to bring us from the fall of man into the salvation of man. Father God, I thank you and I ask this in your name.
Amen. So one of the first things we want to do is ask why Paul uses Abraham way back in the Old Testament to demonstrate truth of the gospel in the New Testament. And who was Abraham and why was he so important? Well, Abraham was born with the name of Abram. In 1996 B.C., before Christ, in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Anybody know where that is? Iraq. That would be modern-day Iraq, southeastern toward Kuwait, a city called Nasiriyah. And ironically, pretty close to where the Garden of Eden is believed to have existed. In 2000 B.C., it is very unlikely that anyone within that region would know the God of the Bible as he appears. What do you call him? Yahweh God, El Shaddai, uh, Creator. He had not revealed himself to all of humanity yet, except that he was Creator. And for them to know exactly who he was personally would have been very unlikely. But apparently, God reveals himself to Abram's father, Terah. Terah is so moved by the experience that he packs up the whole family and decides to travel over 700 miles to the land of Canaan, which is now Israel. However, upon reaching one of his other sons, Haran, Terah stops the journey and settles there. The Bible really doesn't say why. Maybe he saw his grandkids, wanted to spend time with the grandkids. Maybe he was just old and it was his time to, to pass. We really don't know why Terah stopped. But God then moved upon Abraham to keep going. And so God reveals himself to Abram. Abram continues the journey into what will eventually be Israel, the promised land. And you can read about the entirety of Abraham's life in Genesis 12 through Genesis 25. The um, Old Testament has a lot, of, a lot to say about him. Now Abram's wife, Sarai, is childless. Now why does that matter? Well, to put this in a, in a 2020 um, frame of reference, what would the American dream be for you today or anybody? Successful marriage, awesome job, house with a white picket fence, at least, you know, back in the day, at least, you know, your own house, um, few kids, a great retirement, and then, you know, you go to meet the Lord surrounded by your loved ones. That would be the American dream. Well, the American dream in 2000 B.C., what, or I'm sorry, the Israelite dream in 2000 B.C. was giant family. So when we're talking about Sarai, who was unable to conceive a child, they were considered to be accursed at that point. They were considered to be not under God's protection, not in God's favor, that, that God was somehow mad at them, and that... Um, that nothing good was going to happen to them. Now, if you're God, and you're in heaven having a planning meeting about salvation, would you choose a couple that everyone considers to be accursed to launch the salvation history? I mean, that's, that's not the obvious choice, but then again, God's ways are different. Remember I said get used to different? God's ways are almost always different than, than how we would think of it. Not only does he choose a couple that would be considered to be accursed, but he chooses them when they are older. Abram, when he receives this promise, is 80 years old. 
And Sarai is 70. That's pretty darn old. Now, Abram and Sarah, you're thinking, well, you know, they were in the Bible. Maybe they lived to be a thousand years old. No, no, they were, this is after the flood. This is when men and women were pretty much subject to the same um, limitations that we are today when it comes to childbirth. And today, without some gigantic hormonal therapy or medical intervention, a woman is not going to have a child when they're 70. They are well past the time for that when they reach that age. Now, one of the most important verses of the Bible when it comes to understanding what God wants from each one of us is found as God is giving this promise to that Sarai would have a son and that he would be the father of many nations is found in Genesis chapter 15. The Bible says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, why is that so important that Abram believed God? Why, why is belief and faith seem to be the currency of heaven that helps us to be brought into God's favor? Let, let me explain this through something I just went through. Most of you know, last semester I was taking chemistry. And when I say chemistry, what do you think about? Test tubes, beakers, big periodic table that nobody understands. You know, it's things like that. You think you're mixing chemicals, seeing what you can blow up in the lab. You know, different things like that, right? Well, let me tell you what uh, chemistry is, particularly in the later part of the semester. It's this really evil word called stoichiometry. Did I pronounce that right, Melanie? Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's just as hard to say that word as it is to do those problems because what chemistry becomes are math problems that are usually two pages long. They will ask you a question, something like, uh, take four moles of sodium and combine it with three grams of, of chloride, and I want you to um, calculate out exactly how much sodium chloride is made and how much of those two reactants is left over and how much heat was produced by the reaction. That's at least two pages worth of math. It's, it's, it's horrible. But what I got to learn is I got to learn how to do some of the more complex math because that I've never had to do before. And what I learned is if you have the same value on one side of the equation as the same as the other, you can take a slash and you can slash them out because they're not going to, they're not, you can cancel those two out mathematically. So if you have like a negative 10 over here and you had a lot of negatives and positive and exponents and everything else. You could slash one off here, slash one over here, and it would equal out. Now, why am I talking about this? You see, on the spiritual level, this is kind of exactly what Abraham did here. Remember, humanity in Abram's time had fallen. Genesis 3 has already happened. They've already ate the forbidden fruit. They've already been cast out of Eden. They've already taken the sin nature upon um, humanity and uh, and then through them creation and the whole creation is now fallen. If you think about it, that was like the 10 on this side of the equation or the negative 10 on this side of the equation is that they did not believe God and therefore they fell into unrighteousness. Abram believed God's word was true. 
and started humanity on a course that would culminate in the cross of Jesus the Christ. And that was the, the ten on this side of the equation. They canceled each other out. That sin's curse was on its way to being canceled. In fact, God is so impressed with Abram, he decides to show off a little bit. Now, I talked about the difficulties they would have in producing a child at that age. It would have been something for an 80-year-old man and a 70-year-old woman to have a child, but God waits 20 more years. When Abram's 99 and Sarah is 89. Generally speaking... I think we can all agree that men who are 99 years old and women who are 89 years old are not building a nursery. Unless they're having a, like a great, great, great grandchild coming to live with them, right? And I don't want to be too graphic, but in general, their bodies have gotten to the point that even doing the act to produce a child is going to be difficult. That and Sarah is now old enough that she's had more years being in menopause than she had when she was fertile. But then God visits. He visits them and he tells them, build a nursery because the baby is coming. And when that happens, when that promise is about to be fulfilled, he changes their names. He changes their names from Abram, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning the father of multitudes, and Sarai, meaning princess, to Sarah, meaning she who is blessed. And Paul uses Abraham and, and Abraham's belief in this promise to show us the power of faith. And it's one of the reasons, you know, I so appreciate the Bible is that the Bible never whitewashes over the mistakes that the people of God make in the Bible. And God also uses Abraham to show us the opposite of faith. And the opposite of faith is using your own effort to try to, to try to force God or to try to accomplish God's will and how useless and destructive that can be. Now, in fairness, 20 years. Think about that for a moment. 20 years. 20 years. Most of us can't wait 20 minutes after we pray a prayer. To, God, you, you, did you hear me? 20 years, 20 years of seasons coming and going. Sarah looking at Abraham, tapping her, her foot, saying, hey, hey, I'm not getting any younger here. 20 years of his servants asking is now the time. 20 years of Abram's heart, or Abraham's heart yearning for, to hold this child. And unfortunately, I can't say that they came through these 20 years in total faith or unscathed. They made a pretty big mistake, in fact, in trying to help God out fulfilling his promise. And that mistake has a name. His name was Ishmael. About 10 years into the promise, Sarah's getting impatient. She's 79 years old. Now, this is not a 20, 20, 79 years old. This is a 2000 B.C., 79 years old. She's already about 30 years past her life expectancy. They only lived to be about 40 or 50 back then. So she, she, is, she is fairly old, 
even for her age at this time, and lived well beyond her childbearing years. And I'll pause just for a moment because I want to give a little bit of perspective of what happens next. Sometimes we can look back at Bible characters through the, the lens of our, our, our ideas and, and what's acceptable in 2020 and, and write them off as a bunch of primitive barbarians. But this, what we're going to describe here, was actually normal practice in that time. Sarah has a servant woman named Hagar. Now, in ancient Bible times, servants were about half slave, half paid servant, and generally considered to be kind of a member of the family. In fact, when, when God promises Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation, part of what caused God to make this promise was Abraham saying, look, I'm, about, I'm coming up in years, and when I die, all my stuff's going to go to my servant and, and not to a son, and that's what caused God to, to promise him a son. So in their culture, it was perfectly acceptable for a husband to take a slave within his household and marry her and make him her one of the wives. And so Sarah gives her servant to her husband as a concubine or as a subwife so that Abraham can have a son through Hagar, but Sarah will still call that his own. And again, this is a completely acceptable practice in their time. Remember that the Bible often is a history book. As well as being the Word of God, it records history. And it records events without necessarily approving of the events it records. We have to remember that about the Bible. So if anybody else there has the idea of trying to create a sister-wife situation in their household and point to this for biblical justification, you need to, to keep reading because it doesn't end well. Matter of fact, I, don't, I can't point to anything in the Bible when we're talking about multiple wives, husbands, concubines, all of that that ended well for anybody. If you look at Isaac, his various wives caused all kinds of problems amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. If you look at David especially, murder, rape, um, intrigue, assassinations, just all that kind of stuff comes along with those multiple marriages. So men, get that out of your, get that out of your minds. It's, it's just not a good thing. So a son is born from this, and his name is Ishmael. This starts some drama within the household. Now that Hagar has produced a son for Abraham, she's actually correct within that culture in asserting a certain dominance over Sarah. Because Sarah has not produced a child, Hagar has that makes her first wife in their culture. Well, Sarah is not having any of that. She starts to mistreat Hagar. Hagar runs away, grabs Ishmael, runs out into the desert to get away from her. Well, God finds Hagar, tells her to return, and assures her that Ishmael will also live under God's promise to Abraham, and Ishmael will also be the progenitor or the ancestor of a great many people. This is largely the birth of the Arab people, right here. And most Arab people are Muslim who trace their ancestry back through Ishmael. Now let me bring this back to Romans. Paul is using Abraham's life to show the futility of works versus faith. And we simply define faith as God's word is true. Works is us trying to assume God's role in bringing about God's blessing and promises through our own effort, and that never really ends well. 
It all, we, we will always mess that up. You see, God's promise came through Isaac and was a reward of faith. The entire world was blessed through that, in that eventually through Isaac's family came Jesus the Savior. If you consider Ishmael's family, I would ask how many people have died because of war started by Islam, which was the eventual product of a desperate couple trying to help God. I just point that out as a danger of works and trying to bring about God's will in your way. But Paul shows us a better way here, and that is justification through faith, which means to be wholly and completely dependent upon God for your salvation. And when it comes to faith, we often look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it in the Living Bible. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. It is certainly that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. And that's not a bad definition. That's not a bad paraphrase of, of Hebrews 11. But there's an easier one. Faith is simply believing in God's word. Simply believing that God's word is true. And it means what it says. Both the Logos word, which is your Bible, the written word, and the Rhema word, which is that which is spoken. There's a subtle difference, though, between the description of faith given in Hebrews and what it means throughout the rest of the Bible. And the dangerous way that many interpret this today of what faith is, is that people use this Hebrews definition to say that God will give them what they want if they exercise enough faith. And that's a dangerous position to have. Because it creates a works mentality that if I work hard enough, if I pray hard enough, if I obey hard enough, if I give enough, if I do all these things, and God is somehow obligated to do this for me. He's like a genie in the lamp. I'm going to rub him the right way, and he's going to perform for me. That's, that's really blasphemy when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. That is saying, not your will, God, but my will be done. Somehow we're going to twist his, his arm. And it strips God of his sovereignty. And unfortunately, many people, pastors, and churches, even some within our own fellowship, fall into this, this error and deception. My way of seeing it is this. If God never does anything for me ever again, other than grant me salvation through Jesus Christ, he has already blessed me beyond measure and is worthy of my worship and my obedience in this life. I think if we start there, everything else can fall into its proper place. A key word for you to know Justification, we talked about us being justified before. Justification believes that justice has been done. Your sin has been punished. Do you know that? Your sin has been punished. Everybody's worried about, I think God's punishing me. I think God's punishing me because I did this wrong or because I did that wrong. No, your sin's already been punished. If God was going to punish you for your sin, 
grab some asbestos because you're going straight to hell. There is only one punishment for sin. Jesus took that punishment for you. You and every other question, our punishment was taken by Jesus who suffered and died in our place. So that's when we see the word justify in the Bible. We can think of it as meaning just if, as I had never sinned. That's what I tell people, that those big Christian words like justification, think of it as it's, I stand before God just as if I had never sinned. So where, where does obedience factor in? Because we can go way too far over here into justification and, and want to live a lifestyle that's apart from God and think that we're okay. So where does obedience factor in? Obedience is the natural reaction to love showing to you. Let me give you an example. We were talking about anniversaries before and marriage and all that. I'm the kind of person that always has two or three or four thoughts always running through my mind. Tammy's just amazed when she'll... She sees me just sitting there, just looking up at the thing, and she's saying, what, what are you thinking? And I'll tell her like three or four different things I'm thinking of right now, or I'll be doing something, and she's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm picking this up, and I'm also thinking about the sermon, then I'm thinking about Wednesday night, then I'm thinking about something i got to do at work, and they're all kind of running on the track in my mind. And what that does sometimes with me is it produces kind of nervous ticks. And most of you probably don't see it here, but Tammy sees it living with me is I might be sitting there and I'll be tapping something or like I'll be taking my key ring here and it has a little carabiner on it that I put on my hand and I'll just sit there and just start. Well, this drives her absolutely batty. Or I'll pull my knife out of my pocket and I'll just sit there and, and sit there and go, just open and close, I'll actually cut my finger and start bleeding over the place. But I'll just, you know, I'll just start doing that, just start, going through and doing unconscious things like that, drives her absolutely crazy. But because I love Tammy, when she points it out, I stop doing it. I try not to do it. I try when I notice myself doing it or taking the remote that we have that has a loose case and I'll click it back and forth. Whenever I notice myself stop doing it or starting to do it, I stop because I love Tammy enough that I don't want her bothered. That and it's better for me, right? It's kind of like God, being obedient to God is very, very similar. Because you know what? Sin drives God crazy. We call that God's wrath upon sin. If we say that we love God and yet willfully continue to do that which drives Him to wrath, do we really love Him? If you continue to have problems with obedience, I would ask you, have you really received the new nature? Have you really been born again? Have you really received a new heart and spirit and soul through being born again through belief in Jesus Christ? A second application, and I'm almost done here, a second application this morning about obedience is that obedience opens and enables God's blessing. We're always looking for God's blessing. We're always praying for, for neat things. Maybe some of us pray for new cars or a new gun, and, and David, you're always winning them, so you got that blessing. Um, or, you know, just, just different things like that. And we often wonder why God doesn't bless us like he blesses other people. Well, let me give you an example. Do we have, if it's time to bring the kids to school, 
Do we give the car keys to a six-year-old and say, hey, just drive you and your brothers and sisters to, to school? Do we do that? No. Why don't we do that? Because they're not old enough. They're not physically, mentally coordinated enough to guide a 2,000-pound missile at 60 miles an hour down, to, down these twisty roads that we have around here, right? Same thing when it comes to God's blessing. If you're not mature enough and strong enough in your faith and coordinated enough to handle it, then God can't possibly bless you too because that blessing would then become a curse that might draw you away from him. That is where obedience comes in when it comes to God's blessings. And again, we're not talking about what I was talking about before, rubbing God the right way and hoping he'll perform, but it just shows you how obedience can factor in to all of this before. Now, God can bless us despite our lack of obedience as an act of fatherly love, but how much more could he release the riches of heaven if we simply believed his word was true and we obeyed it? Just like Abraham did. And that is the, the quintessential truth that we see in Romans chapter 4, is how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. May we be a people that are very similar and model that before God. Let's all stand. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, that the truth from the Old Testament can be shown to us in the New Testament that we see your hand throughout the entire history that we see within the Bible, that you are guiding humanity back to you even when we willfully chose to run away. Father, what love, what graciousness, what outstanding mercy you have. And Lord God, I just ask that you just place within every one of our hearts a heart of thanksgiving for that, a heart of, of appreciation for the height and depth and, and, and width of your love, your grace and your forgiveness. Father, help us not to look to this world for our, our sense of how pleased you are with us, but help us to understand what you've already rescued us from and react with a greater amount of appreciation, a greater amount of love, and a greater amount of, of dedication to you in these last days. Strip away all those things that would compete for our attention, and let us walk before you as a people ready to do your will and ready to give our lives for the gospel. Lord God, I thank you, and I bless your people today. I ask, Father, you keep them safe. I ask, Father, you keep them right in the center of your will. And I ask, Father, that you bless them in every way this week. Let their lives reflect the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone who doesn't know you. Lord God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Reminder, Wednesday we're starting back up. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.